Let it be, O Lord. As you've paid it all, that we would accept. We would accept the gift of salvation today. You would speak to our hearts. You have unfettered access. Because of Calvary, we want to be surrendered to you. So speak, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you what the story is, all right? You've got to guess it. You ready? You have got to guess this story. Journalist Chas Danner and journalist Margaret Hardiman said, hey, this is how they described it. Based on their description, see if you can know what event they're describing. Their words. Once it became clear that the incident was not staged, seemingly everyone felt compelled to form an opinion on it and to share their views with friends, family members, co-workers, social media followers, their hairstylists, their dog walkers, strangers in line at the grocery store, etc. What are they talking about? They're talking about the slap scene around the world. Put a picture on the screen for you because you haven't seen this picture before. This is totally new. You have not seen that picture anywhere, have you? You've seen it everywhere. Those of us that didn't know the Oscars were happening last week rested well until the world exploded Monday morning with the news of one man's hand hitting another man's face. Immediate reactions across the globe. Immediate. Monday morning, the questions were being posed. What in the world are the roles of a man to protect his wife? What in the world are the rules of a man making fun of a woman? What, where where are the lines at? Was this abusive by a man to say about a woman? Was this, was it chivalry for a man to stand up and strike another man? Was it violence instead? Ironic that that an industry that has done its absolute best to to dissuade the world of gender roles all of a sudden started asking gender roles. I didn't make it up. I didn't make it up. But a whole industry that has been unabashedly intent all of a sudden started asking the questions. Wait a minute. Were some lines crossed there? There's macro issues. There's the macro issues and questions that that surface around genders. Macro questions like, really, are there really boundaries of just two genders? Macro questions like, are there moral boundaries of gender identity and sexual expression? Those are the macro questions. And there's micro questions. Like, what about gender roles in the home and in relationships? What is a man? Who is he supposed to be as a father, as a husband, as a friend? What is a woman? Who is she supposed to be as a wife, as a mother, as a friend? They're the macro questions. We'll we'll look at those. 
But I don't want us to get lost and miss the micro questions because often, often, they're very present but ignored. Uh, last fall, our hospital administration from Avista handed me a book, Mission Drift, written by Peter Greer and Chris Horse. Mission Drift. Looking at faith-based organizations and how they can drift from their mission. Organizations that we know, like Yale and Harvard University, birthed to be, to be Bible-based educational centers, but have since wandered from their mission. The, Andy Crouch, who wrote the foreword for the book, Mission Drift, I'll put his words on the screen. He says, leadership and the concerns of leaders is this to ensure that an organization stays true to its mission, especially when that mission becomes countercultural. For a faith-based organization like a school, a church, a health center, that's relevant. It's the second law of thermodynamics that any organization, entity in a closed system, meaning without outside input, will eventually reach maximum entropy. Could the family, could relationships, and could marriage be one of those organizations, faith-based organizations, that has drifted? Oh, you say, absolutely, let's talk about that. But I'm afraid, I'm not, I'm not afraid that you're going to just look at the macro. I'm afraid you're going to only look at the macro questions that we just visited a minute ago. Love, intimacy, tantalizing words, difficult to define. How do you define love? It's overused, underused. Intimacy, overused and underused, depending on the context you're in. It's at least a bit ironic, you have to admit, that in the context that love and intimacy are supposed to have their epicenter, they're supposed to be best seen, they're often at their worst in the home and in marriage and in families. Love and intimacy are often there the least used, it seems. Not just in those, but about those. Love in these and toward those ought not to be foreign in the Christian context. God has a lot to say about the subject, in fact. I have on my desk, my study desk at home, a stack of books that I have been working through over the course of these last months or year, and not all of them land there, but many of them do. It's a, it's a stack. It's, about three feet high. Two of the biggest books, two of the biggest books on the stack. In fact, two, th there's only one other that even comes close to their size. Two of the biggest books are dealing with what the Bible has to say about the subject of intimacy, intimacy sexuality, and marriage, and gender roles. So it's not that the Bible is, is, is ignorant to this at all, or ignoring it. 
takes it head on. For example, Richard Davidson, Old Testament scholar, Andrews University, wrote his magnum opus published in 2007 called The Flame of Yahweh, a literal translation of an expression used in the Song of Solomon's, the flame of Yahweh. Sexuality is the flame of Yahweh. He takes that as a title of his book, subtitle, Study of Sexuality in the Old Testament, just the Old Testament. His book, 874 pages. The bibliography alone is 140 pages of the references and the resources that he looks at in order to say this is a this is a Old Testament conclusion of sexuality, gender, and relationships. He, he calls it a he calls it a favorite word of mine, Brobdingnagian. He said it's a Brobdingnagian task. Well, it's a Brobdingnagian subject with Brobdingnagian impact. This is huge, gargantuan. So let's grab our Bibles and talk about it. We've got, we've got two weeks, so don't worry. We've got two weeks to tackle the Brobdingnagian subject. Once from the Old Testament, next week we'll talk about the New Testament. We're going to Genesis. Where else would we go if we're going to start in the Old Testament? Genesis chapter 1. Got your Bibles? Yeah? Of course. If you don't, there's a pew Bible in the pew in front of you. Grab it. Let's read. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to just jump down to verse 26, shall we? These verses you're very familiar with, you've memorized them even. First Genesis, chap- first Genesis in, in contrast with second Genesis. First Gen- Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Stop right there. We're going to read 27 in just a second, but you have got to kept, capture this. God says in, 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 a, in some sort of conversation, and I, and, and I believe there is a sacred circle that the Godhead circles around. At some point when they make the plans, these plans they, they, they come up with for creation, and they dream of, 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 of new creation, and and at some point, God circles up and says, let's make mankind in our image, in our likeness. It's a fascinating study. I, I had the opportunity to spend a whole semester on this passage when I was in my graduate studies. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. We have, there are some, some conclusions, and I will just uh, be upfront with you, that they are not... Uh, in my humble opinion, uh, biblical conclusions, but that the likeness and the image here is just an internal spiritual image that we reflect spiritually, God. No, not at all. The terminology used here is very clear in, in the Hebrew expression. This is a physical image. This is a mental image. This is a spiritual, yes, an emotional image. This is a complete image that God is talking about here. When he made man, he said, I want them in our likeness. I want them to reflect us. But it goes deeper, much deeper, much, while it does include, it goes much deeper than any physical or certainly biological reflection. So God dreams this up. We want, this is something God apparently hadn't done in other creation. At least we're not told he had. But here, he, he, he creates, he said, let's create this world. What should we put? All right, plants, trees, flowers. Excellent, excellent, excellent. We're loving this, we're loving this. Ah, and as a part of this creation, let's make, 
let's make something in our image to enjoy this. And that the image, them being in our image, will actually give them the ability to rule. So the, so the reflection, the, the image that we're created in, goes beyond just the biological, the physical. It goes beyond just this. It goes to a, a, a regal, royal calling to actually reflect God in his majesty and his beauty. And it just... It, it, it sizzles your, your, your little pathways. What does that mean? What does that mean? I mean, just tell me what that means. Well, that's where it doesn't work. But we were called to, to such a high calling so that they may rule. And this was the invitation that God had for, for his people, his, his image. He said, I want you to have this regal, royal calling where you rule over all my other creation. I'm going I'm to give you part of my authority Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. You don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to catch the absolute operative uh, repetition that happens in Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 27. It's just over and over. Let us make mankind in our image. Let us make mankind in our, our likeness. And so God made man in his image. And in the image of God, he made him. The image of God, this is the the. As, as the Bible would, would say, uh, what our attention is meant to be drawn to, we carry the image of God. 27 says God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them. And then it uses a literary device that's often used in Hebrew, and not just Hebrew, uh, Greek as well uses this, but it's the, it's the repeat and enlarge. And so he repeats it one more time. Male and female, he created them. Wait a minute, is this just a little uh, PS, a little addendum? No, 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 it's the repeat and enlarge. Image of God, image of God, image of God, image of God, male and female. That is to say... That God's design, and I'm far from being God, so why just male and female? Why was that the, the, the perfect number? Some have argued, well, it, it, creates, it creates a perfect triangle, and, and, and love is at its best in a triangle. So God, man, and woman, it creates that triangle. That, that makes sense to me, but, but there could be other reasons that one day God says, ah, now I'm going to explain to you why, why there was male and female, why there were two that it... And God will open that up to us. But this is, this is what the, the Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is saying. In the image of God, you were made in the image of God so that you would rule, so that you would have regal responsibility, royal calling, male and female, in the image of God. It's the same. Apparently, it took the male and female coming together. And, and, and Genesis isn't done, so don't, 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 don't wrap up yet. But God says, I need, I need both of them coming together to best make my image. Oh, you can, you can, you can know. You can just know. It's, it's, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to know that if somebody wanted that job of, of r- ruling the world, ruling the creation on this planet, if somebody wanted that job, then they would not like you for having that job. All right? I mean, come on, high schoolers, let's just, 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 just be honest about it. The, the girl that you want to date, you don't like the guy that's dating her. That just, it just goes, when you grow up, if somebody has your job, the job you want, you don't necessarily like the person that has the job that you want. It's, 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 not, it's not difficult to understand. 
why Satan would hate us and hate this specific aspect of us so much. He wanted to rule the world. He said, hey, this is my place. I'm going to be the king. I am the king of planet Earth. God says, I'm sorry, I've already filled that position. I've created man and woman coming together to rule my creation. Oh, Satan says, ah, that's not going to work for me. And so he has bent himself on destroying it. Don't be a fool. He hates you. He hates you. And husband and wife, he hates your relationship. Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, God identifies the context of every person on this planet. You're, you're, you're created and you're meant to be in those two genders. Three things, three key aspects. First of all, you were created by divinity. You were created by a God. You were created in his image. And it takes those two genders coming together to make his image. That's where we go. We'll go there in just a minute. Just hold on. We're going to chapter 2 in just a second. The amount of space, though, and time and effort that Genesis 1, 2, and 3, those three chapters, give to this subject, Richard Davison, I'll put his words on the screen, in his 874-page uh, book, Flame of Yahweh, put his words within the cosmic scope of the creation narrative, the disproportionate amount of space devoted to the subject of sexuality also underscores its special significance in the theology that is, sexuality was not just an aside, just a little gift God gave to man. It, would actually, it actually plays a deep role in the presentation of theology, who God is, the understanding of God, theology. And so this is, this is Richard Davidson, Dr. Davidson, has said, whoa, this is way bigger than just a little biological function. It gives a lot, of, a lot of time and space to it. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. I love this verse. This is a great verse. Oh, we've heard it. We've heard it at wedding after wedding after wedding. Come on, come on. Verse 18. The Lord God said, direct quote, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper. I will make... A helper. I want you to hang that word on your mind because we're coming right back to it. What you might not have caught, oh, for sure you have, but just for the few of us that didn't. God has been speaking in, chapter, in Genesis chapter 1 and, and thus far in Genesis chapter 2. And he said just the opposite about everything it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. Ah, it's good. Not good. Why in the world? Why, why, why did God even need to create man without woman? He could have created him just like he created everything else together. It almost appears. No, no, no. Almost. Strike that from the record. It appears as if God had a pregnant pause right before he created this because this, this was his greatest work. Not man, not woman, but man and woman. In fact, he gives five times the amount of space to talking about the union of man and woman that he does to just the creation of man. Five times the amount of space. This is a big deal. 
to God. And so like a conductor of an orchestra or of a, of a band where they, where they pause right before that final exclamation point, before the final expression of music, there's a pause. Everybody knows. And then it's satisfied. God said, in this moment, when I reveal my image to the world, when I put my stamp, my own picture to the world, I want that pause because I want the world to forever know how incredibly special and valuable this is. And so God creates Adam alone. There's no reason for that. Except he needed it to, to be clear that it, this, wait a minute, this is not good. Now watch me, watch me. As a conductor, he then finished the scene and all of creation said, we got it. My job as a preacher is not to instruct you how to maneuver through the current culture. That seems like a fun job, but that's not my job. My job is to despite culture, to despite what culture may or may not say. My job as a preacher is to direct you to what the Bible says. That's my job. So I'd like to talk to you about maneuvering culture, but I can't. I can't. That's not what God called me to. And so you may get angry with me and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not, you're not being nice. Please forgive me. I want you to know that before I stood up here to preach today, I sat with, with those who have different conclusions than I do. Because I promised them I won't get up until I share with you where I'm coming from. And you say, well, we disagree with you but at least you're, you're being honest to what you believe. The Bible says. I did my homework before I stood up today. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. Then God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. God plays doctor, surgeon for a minute here. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. I like how he, it talks about how he finished the job. You know, he didn't just rip the rib out. He, he closed, he, he finished his job like a good surgeon would. He tidied him up, stitched him up. Good, done. Then God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, some, some commentator said, no, the man didn't say, the man sang. The man sang, whoo, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Then she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. This, this is the conclusion. Again, that pregnant pause where the conductor stopped creation right before it was at its complete satisfaction. He left us hanging for just a moment there until we could recognize, wait a minute, this music is not resolved. We need something more. This creation is not resolved. It is not good that man be alone. And then he resolves it. And he gives this space, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. It just gives one verse to man. Hey, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Next. That's all it says about the creation of man. But when it comes to this union that, is, that will reflect the image of God 
Adam did not before Eve was created. That's what the Bible's telling us. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother. I think this part is funny because Adam didn't have a father and mother to leave. But he says, prophetically, he says, that's why a, a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. One from two different places, they become one. That one flesh speaks of intimacy, physical, spiritual, emotional, mental. Hey, I told you to hang a, a word on your mind just uh, from verse 18, a suitable helper. The, the Hebrew word is konegdo, K-E-N-E-G-D-O. That's how you, connecto. And this, this word is, is just what it, many translations bear it out to be, comparable, unequal, and an opposite. <laughs> what? Unequal, but an opposite. As, as some of us have heard from places around the world, it's the same, same, but different. What? Wait a minute, though. Wait a minute. Rewind the tape and listen to the creation story again. It is a week filled with opposites, but equals. Light. Darkness. The darkness isn't bad. It's just the opposite of light. And there's time for both of those. Sun, moon, firmament, waters, earth, sea. And the whole creation week is lined up in a context of opposites that are equals, that complement each other, that work together. And then, so you have the, the, the light, the darkness, sun, moon, firmament, waters, earth, seas, and man and woman. That's the crowning act of God's creation as he brings those two opposites but equals together. And then chapter 2 concludes, Adam and his wife were both naked. By the way, it's very clear, this, is, this conversation is in the context of family. I'm not talking about civil relationships today or next week. I'm not talking about religious uh, roles uh, or relationships. I am talking about Adam and his wife. That's the context of Genesis. That's where we're staying. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. But naked is just a, is a term to say they weren't clothed in the, in the normal way. David took off his kingly garments and was dancing with, with less than his kingly garments, but not nothing. And, and Michael, Saul's daughter, his wife said, hey, that's a shame that you danced naked in front of all the people. And David said, no, I was dancing before the Lord. This term is, they were not clothed in the traditional, traditional expectations. What were they clothed with? They were clothed with a reflection of the image of God. That's the whole context. But shame, what about the word shame? Shame is the antithesis of, the, of what, what they were meant to do in Genesis chapter one. It actually sets up the tragedy that is about to happen in just chapter three. But Genesis chapter one, they were given a regal, a royal responsibility of ruling the creation, ruling. And then you find out the antithesis is shame. From regal, from royal, they go to shame. And that's, Satan says, that's what I wanted to do all along. I want to pull down that, that royal calling that they have, and I want to drag them down into the shamefulness, the despondency, the discouragement. Genders were not meant to be discouraging. They were meant to be beautiful. 
these two passages, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, that Jesus refers to in, in Matthew 19. He's quoted in Matthew 19, verse 4, when he, he reestablishes the role in the New Testament of marriage and intimacy. He sets this, he, he goes straight back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, because Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 are determinative. All that's to say is they were the fundamental establishment of how creation was made to be. It's outside of you and I being able to meddle with them or change them. It, it goes beyond the winds of change or of opinion or feeling. It's determined. It is set. And so Jesus points back to Genesis and says, that's where you ought to go. And he, in fact, tells him, he said, I know some things have changed. Moses allowed you to do this or that or the other with divorce because of, of, of certain reasons. But you want to know the truth. You want to know what is determinative, what is norm, what, what is fundamental. Go back to Genesis. That's what Jesus said. And then the New Testament fills this conversation of, of conversation between a, a husband and a wife, Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and it just talks and talks and talks about it. And so we'll talk about that next week. But we have the macro, the question of gender identity and sexuality, and then we have the micro. What about me as a father, as a husband, in a family context? What is my role? What does that one flesh mean? How would you describe? All right, just tell me. Tell me what a man is supposed to be. Tell me what a woman is supposed to be and we'll be good. We can get out, we can get out right now. You'll find them strangely absent today. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. You'll find it strangely absent. Elizabeth Elliot, in her work, she's got a couple of, of classic works on this subject. In one of her works, she just says, hey, in order to learn what it means to be a man or to be a woman, we must start with the one who made man and woman. We've got to start with the question of God. And where did this come from? I'm, I'm listening to the radio the other day, and Brent Hansen, he's an author. He's, a, he's, a, he's many things, but he's an author. I have three books maybe now. Uh, and his latest book, The Men We Need, he writes, the men we need. I wanted to read it, so I went on to buy it. Right As soon as I heard him talking about it and sharing about it, I went on to buy it, and uh, it, it hadn't even been published yet. So it's fresh off the, I think it's, it's now been published. I think the date was uh, two or three days ago, um, so it might be available now. But before, when I, before I left Costa Rica, it wasn't available, so I couldn't read it. The men we need. I told you I'm not going to tell you about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. I, I'm not going to tell you, except I, just allow me this one indulgence. I want to talk to the men. And let me use a story from Brant Hansen. He tells the story of 2018, back in May of 2018, so now four years ago, from Paris, France. A tragedy is unfolding in, a, in an apartment high-rise. You remember the news Probably a crowd gathers as they watch a toddler hanging on to a banister of some sort of balcony support for some stories above their heads. What are they going to do? Where are the parents? Well, one man didn't stay, stay put very long. Mr. Gassama, 22 years old, an illegal immigrant from Mali. Snuck in across, had gotten into Paris, France illegally, but there he was watching this four, 
find out four-year-old hanging from the edge of the balcony. Let me put a picture on the screen for you. Here it is. He didn't stay put. That's him in the bottom. That's the toddler. You see a couple of stories above him. He begins to scale the side of the building, up the balconies, and using the bricks. They call him the, 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 the Spider-Man of Paris. That's what they called him. 22 years of age, scales up, grabbing the young infant, pulling him to safety. Wow. The news and the pictures went around the country and around the world. So the president of France said, hey, you've got to come in here, and I've got to talk to you. So he invited him in. That's Mr. Gassama speaking to the French president, saying, hey, what's your story? <laughs> so here's an illegal immigrant. Whoops. Now sitting in front of the president on national news telling his story. What's your story? Well, by the end of the interview, the president had issued him legal documentation to live in France. He said, hey, you're the kind of guy we want in this France. You're the kind of man we want. That's coming from the French president. So it's, you're the kind of man we want. By the way, where was dad? Oh, he'd lost track of time playing Pokemon. He lost track of time playing on his phone. And so France, not me, but France, stood up and said, by the way, world, we want the kind of man that scales the wall to save a young boy, knowing that his livelihood in this country could be in jeopardy, and not the man distracted on video games. That's what, that's what the man said. That's, that's what France said. Uh, Brant Hansen did a, was part of a research study where they showed women pictures of, of balding plump men. That's his words, balding plump men, but doing heroic activities. And then they measured the, the, the women's response and, so, and the end said, more than the, than, the, than the commercial guy without his shirt on and the, and the abs, more attractive to a woman is a bald plump man doing a heroic activity. So there's hope in the world, I guess is what I'm saying. But here's what I'm saying, men, and this is, my, this is the end of my soapbox, and then I'm done. The call of the world is to distract men. The call of God is to raise up servant, surrendered leaders in their home. Oh, father and husband, don't let it be that the only person that your children see praying and leading out in family worship is the mother. Oh, go for it, moms. Go for it. But, oh, dads, your calling, your calling was to set an example as a surrendered servant leadership leader in your home. You be that. All right, I'm done with the soapbox. Let's go on. I'm sitting in Costa Rica at a dinner table. We were eating dinner with our church family before we went to preach that one of the nights, sitting there eating our beans and tostadas and cheese, and it was good food. I'm thankful. Let me let picture on the screen there. That's our little church, about 100, 120. They're all waving. You might not be able to see the bright light in the back, but they're all waving. I told them, wave, wave at the folks back at camp. You know, so they're waving to you. A little Esperanza church. Hope is what it means. A little Esperanza church. Last week, we had about 100 decisions. 75 were baptized. As you heard, more will be baptized. Thank you for helping us go. Thank you for helping these young people and some of the not so young go. But we're sitting at this dinner table. We're sitting at the dinner table and Micah, my, my boy, we're all 
chatting in Spanish back and forth, and, and he looks up across the table and just says, hey, Dad, what, uh, what right do parents have to name children? That's a good, good, a good question. What right? So a father's carnal reaction. What right do I have to name my children? Listen, I paid for your birth. I'm legally responsible for you in this world. I've gotten up early and stayed up late to care for you as an infant. I had to care for your mother that's gotten up even earlier and stayed up even later to care for you, but that's beside the point. Uh, I'm bigger than you. I brought you into this world. Oh, what do you mean, what right? But God tapped me at the dinner table in Costa Rica. I said, hey, psh. here's what I would say. What I, what I wanted my children to know was not that I had a legal right I was bigger than they were, or that I had brought them into this world, but that I had labored along with Melanie in love, considering their name, the meaning of the name, the impact of their name, how it sounded. We had, we had agonized. We had talked to other people. What do you think about this name? How do you think? We had wreck, wrestled with this, and when we had finally decided a name, it, it was because we had personally invested ourselves. We had owned this thing. This name was special because we loved that baby. We had given them this name. Some of us. Some of us wrestle. Who, what right does God have to tell me who I need to be as a father, as a husband, as a human, as a woman, as a man? What right does God have to tell me my identity? Well, we could ask him, and he could in a thundering way, which would probably make us wet our pants. He could tell us that in the legalities of the universe, he owns us. He formed us. He breathed life into us. And when we had a one-way ticket to death, he paid his life to buy us back. And he owns us now twice. He stayed up late and he's gotten up early to keep us safe. He who never sleeps or ever slumbers. He could do that. But he doesn't. He doesn't try to overwhelm us with his size or tell us how the legalities work or how he brought us into this world. What does he do? Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1. Let me read it for you. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1. But now, this is what the Lord says. This is what he says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. I have given you your identity. You are mine. Verse 4. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. You are the most valuable to me. That's why I gave you your identity. It wasn't because I was trying to control. It was because I had invested myself into you and I created something beautiful and something special. And Satan says, ah, if it's that gender identity, that man and the woman that will come together in a union that will make the image of God and that will rule over God's creation, then that's what I'm going to target. That's what I'm going to attack. And I will do my absolute hellish best to confuse it. And he's done it. But just in case you're, you are wondering, let me remind you, I am talking about the macro questions of gender and sexuality, but I'm also talking about the micro questions of what is your role as a father, 
What is your role as a mother, as a man, and as a woman? Well, tell us, tell us what they're to be. Why don't you go back to God? Why not? Why not go to God and say, God, you created me. Who did you make me to be? And what should I do? He created, he created, it says, let us make mankind in our image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. And that's the truth doesn't always make sense. Maybe you've struggled with it on the macro level or maybe you've struggled with it on the micro level. But go to God. Go to God who made it in the very beginning, male and female, and say, God, I feel this way. Culture says this. My laziness has led me this way. My parent heritage, the examples I've gotten from my father and my mother have led me this way. But I want to be a new creation. I want to be yours. All yours the way you made me to be regal and royal, beautiful. Amen. Don't sell out, beloved. Don't sell out. Don't be lazy. Don't accept culture's indoctrination. Don't do it. The value of who you are, the value of who, what your gender is and what you were meant to be as a man and as a woman, you were created for something regal and royal. Don't give up on it. Don't sell out early. I've got two I'm going to invite the worship team up. I've got two, two lines here. In 2010, you guys know about cryptocurrency. Maybe some of you invested in that. I'm not smart enough to, to, to wade into that, but, but all the more power to you if you have, or if you do, or if, you, if, you, if, uh, if you've enjoyed that at all. But in 2010, just 12 years ago, a man bought two takeout pizzas. Hey, with cryptocurrency. It was 10,000 bitcoins. He bought two takeout pizzas. That was the price of two, thousand, uh, of, uh, two takeout pizzas. 10,000 bitcoins. So what's the problem? If the man had skipped those two takeout pizzas, today his 10,000 bitcoins would be worth $639 million. I hope the pizzas tasted good. And this is coming from a... a, a, a a public unfan of pizza. What a waste. Two takeout pizzas. I wrote about Ronald Wayne. Breaks our heart to hear these stories. Ronald Wayne sold his 10% share of Apple in the early 1990s. 10% share. I'll sell it. Sold it for $800. That 10% share of Apple today would be worth $47 billion. I would tell you more, but it just breaks your heart. It breaks your heart. Don't sell out. This most precious, royal gift God gave of creation, the one where he, he made a pause. It wasn't a pause before he created man. That was special, but he made man. But it wasn't the full, the full image of God. And so then he, then he had this pregnant pause. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's not good. <gasps> All of creation gasped. <gasps> God said it's not good. What's going to happen? And then he made it good. He made it beautiful. God created man and woman to be the reflection of his image. Don't sell out soon. What you might miss, like Ronald Wayne, 
or the poor chap who had two pizzas. Don't sell out early. Don't be lazy. Well, it's the way my father was. It's the way I am, impatient, not a spiritual leader. No, it's the way culture just dictates. That's culture's fault. No, 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 no. Please, please, for the sake of all that is beautiful and all that is godly, go back to the one who made you regal, royal, and beautiful. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.